passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Joining us today at Post Wrestling, a man that does not need an introduction, but we will still give him one, the esteemed editor of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter and has just put out the Wrestling Observer Yearbook covering a very intriguing and tumultuous year that was 1997. Uh, Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Um, this is it was such an interesting year for you to uh, choose to do the, this yearbook release on, and I guess right off the bat, when you were uh, presented with this project, uh, was 1997 the automatic go-to year that you felt would be the best one to introduce for this series? Absolutely, like without question. It was like mm. the first one. It was like between the Survivor Series and Brian Pillman and just the whole, you know, the heat of the wrestling war. And, you know, also what happened with MMA that year where mm. MMA went from from doing really well to, you know, it's it's like the, you know, you can look week by week, month by month at the dominoes falling from MMA being, you know, the different cable companies dropping and then the politics involved and ECW getting pay-per-view and there's so many, so, was, I just thought it was a huge year for news. In terms of your day-to-day reporting at this time, how much is shifting to the internet for you in 1997? Is that still a year or two away from that process or are you seeing that that shift occurring by this point in 1997? I wasn't even thinking in that direction in 1997. I think that, um, you know, the it, it came, I mean, certainly, I think by the Iyadi year, so that's 1999, I think mm-hmm. is when I really got into it. So, yeah, no, at this point, not even thinking about it. There's, you know, several big themes that I took out of just reading all of the stories. And one, I mean, that's a big spotlight throughout is the UFC and ECW. And, you know, to someone that is just a modern day follower of the business, I don't think can truly appreciate just how much of the power rested in the middleman, that being the cable providers that were the life and death of these companies. And 1997, it was quite the struggle for ECW to get the pay-per-view and for UFC to just try and stay on pay-per-view and stay afloat. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, the UFC, you know, really to me, like, hit really big in like 2005 when it got on Spike TV. But there was a first run from 1993 through 1996 that was pretty strong. And it was really, I, I think in, in 1986, some dominoes started falling, but 1997 was when they really all started falling. And it went from being um, a very popular, like, you know, four or five time a year pay-per-view to almost extinct by the end of the year. I mean, not quite, but when it was so low, it went from so high to so low. And this year was the, that year was the year that really most of the dominoes fell. And with ECW, um, their struggle, you know, I mean, I, I think Paul Heyman's thing was, you know, they were losing money and they thought pay-per-view would be their savior. 
And there was, you know, people who thought, you know, you don't have enough fans to make it on pay-per-view and others thought, oh, they'll kill it on pay-per-view. And, it, and the truth ended up being someone in the middle. But, um, you know, the big struggle to get on pay-per-view for ECW and then finally getting on and nearly, you know, like the generator nearly blowing up, you know, like 30 seconds after the, you know, the, the show ended, if it would have been, you know, in the middle of the main event 10 minutes earlier, it would have probably been their last time on pay-per-view. Um, so yeah, the whole struggle of ECW was a big part of that year. And then WCW and WWF, you know, just jockeying, you know, regularly, weekly, you know, even though WCW was winning the the ratings war, I mean, the, the war was not just ratings and there were, you know, like there's the battle of Los Angeles where they both ran head to head and tried to put on really loaded shows and spent ridiculous amounts of money, uh, to one up each other, you know, things like that. You know, uh, I don't know if you recall this, but uh, for UFC 205, the UFC finally gets to Madison Square Garden, and you and I and Todd Martin actually were just uh, meeting up before the show. And I'm kind of curious just for you being, you know, pretty much the only reporter that was covering it at the time that was also there to cover it that night. Uh, what that meant for you just in that that night, seeing the UFC, this sold-out building at Madison Square Garden, and, you know, chronicling like this this company was not all that far from being dead in 1997. And the thought of New York just seemed so far fetched at, at a period of time that it was given up on. Well, I actually saw the only previous UFC show in New York, which was in, um, I believe 1995 in Buffalo. Um, yeah. In Buffalo, in Buffalo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, like the, the, the day I really had that feeling for UFC was, was the show in Toronto with George St. Pierre and, to see like 56, 55,000 people in a sold out, you know, Rogers center. Um, and at those high ticket prices and just how huge it was, the garden, the garden was big. And I mean, there's always symbolism of Madison square garden, but to me, Toronto was so much bigger, you know, seeing that, that, um, that show. Um, I mean, New York was big because Conor McGregor was there and there was a lot of electricity and, and things like that. And I mean, I, I know that there's a lot of, because it's New York, there's always going to be a lot of, um, you know, kind of like it's a symbol. And certainly I'm sure for the Fertitas coming from, you know, and, and Dana White coming from the boxing, the idea of Madison Square Garden, because of that meant, you know, because of Ali Frazier and the million other big fights that were there meant more than Toronto. But to me, having been there from the beginning and then seeing that sellout in Toronto was actually the big one for me. When you're assessing like this, this transformation for the UFC in 1997, it was inevitable that they were going to have to evolve out of the spectacle nature of it. But that was a huge part of the allure of the UFC as you're seeing them have to transition themselves into more of a, of a sports like presentation. Are you looking at this as something that with the right distribution, it's viable or are we looking at something that, you know, like kickboxing getting onto ESPN, that that was going to be the ceiling for this reinvention of the UFC at that time? Yeah, we didn't know. I mean, and kickboxing was the perfect example to me of something that was weird because kickboxing, to me, I always found kickboxing very entertaining, but it never caught on, especially, you know, like um, when, um, you know, Muay Thai style kickboxing. I loved that when I was younger and I thought it was going to be really big and it, it never made it. And then UFC as the spectacle was big. I thought UFC with the right distribution um because it did, did between 93 and 96, it did make it. So I always thought this is a viable thing. That's all about, you know, like everything, marketing personalities and getting the right personalities in at the right time. So I always thought the chance was there, but, um, 
you know, in 97, I wasn't feeling that it was dead. I just thought that, um, it was weird though, because I never, like, if, if, if you were following it from in the early years, you know, you were kind of thinking like this thing on pay-per-view is becoming a rival to WWF and WCW. And then, and you didn't, and you go like in more and more time, you know, maybe it'll surpass it because it's real. And then all of a sudden this thing comes out of left field, which is cable companies dropping it. And actually the first one was Toronto in 96, I believe. Um, I mean, not Toronto, but Canada uh, was, um, but they were the, Canada was the first country to stop it. And I remember being in the elevator with David Isaacs. The first show that you didn't get to see, luckily, was I think the Severn Shamrock fight and, and David Isaacs goes, you know, Canada's 20% of our business. Wow. And, uh, and, and it was just like, this is a giant hit. And that was the first, you know, at the time it's like, well, I don't know what's going on in Canada, but it can't happen in the United States because business is too good. And then it started happening one by one in the United States that essentially UFC became the sacrificial lamb of cable companies because John McCain had so much power at the time. And they figured, well, if we sacrifice UFC at the altar of John McCain and just stop it, you know, we'll be able to get away with a lot of other stuff. And and ECW, the funny part was some people were looking at ECW as a way to make up the revenue lost by losing UFC. That's actually probably the reason that ECW was able to get on pay-per-view, even with WWF and WCW there not wanting them on and having some power, is that we're losing all these millions of dollars losing um, UFC. So how can we make it up? And it's like, let's give ECW a chance. As uh, we just shipped over a bit to the, the professional wrestling side, and it's interesting to to look at the the two sides. Like you're seeing this the rise in popularity. What WCW is going forward at, at this time, WWF is having their own momentum with, with the Heart Foundation and such. But then on the other side of it, it is pushing these performers to such a limit that you just see this power keg forming. And I think you you start to see that explosion that culminates with Brian Pillman in October. And you detail this pretty clearly, like that the signs are there, like the pill use and what these what these performers are being put in in this in this battle is that, yeah, it's a, it's a chance for prosperity in the industry. But there is a very real human toll that is coming out of this and sadly would be realized in the years to come. Yeah, I mean, we had had that uh, uh, before Brian Pillman, but um, you know, his, that was the one was the first... that really woke up a lot of people that may have been the deniers of what was happening at the time. I think so, um, and also because of the nature of how it happened. WF performer on the day of a pay per view, um, and and one of their yeah, one of their, in the middle of an angle and being one of their. I mean, he wasn't top top guy, but he was absolutely one of the most talked about guys in the industry at the time. Uh, maybe even the most talked about guy in the industry. So it was, it was, uh, it was a real devastating, um, you know, it was just a devastating uh, loss, the nature of it, the fact that there were people who predicted it happening beforehand, you know, making it almost sadder that, you know, we saw it coming. Why didn't any of us stop it? You know what I mean? But, but what could you do, you know, to stop it? And, and, you know, I don't know the answer and I don't know the answers there. Um, but yeah, just because because you know the the big thing in WWF that whole year was the the U.S. versus Canada thing, and Brian Pillman, um, even though he was American, was part of Team Canada because he had started with with uh, in Calgary and with with the Hart family and everything like that. And and it was, I mean, to me, that's one of the greatest periods of WWF television of all time. Is that that period in the summer of 1997 when they're going back and forth? They just lucked into um, booking a lot of Canadian dates for television that year. 
way ahead of time that worked out perfectly. It's the craziest thing when you look back on it because it wasn't planned like we're going to do this U.S. and Canada feud. Let's book a bunch of Canadian dates. Those dates were booked way ahead for TVs. And it made for this incredible atmosphere. And it was really Brett's idea that everybody else thought was like a terrible idea. But because Brett had so much power at the time, Vince went along with it to keep Brett happy. And, you know, Brian Pillman and everyone else went along with Brett's idea because they, you know, I mean, Brett was a star and they could link themselves to it, but they didn't have confidence in it until really the Canadian, the, the Calgary Stampede show. And that's when I think everybody realized wow, you know, this is a really big thing. And it was, you know, to me, it was the, the stage one of the turnaround. I mean, the turnaround actually doesn't doesn't come fully until uh, DX, I think, was a big thing. So this is the end of 97. You can start feeling this, the, the turnaround a little bit. And then it really, with Mike Tyson, that's early 98 is when the turn, you know, the turnaround really starts heating up. And then when Vince McMahon becomes a character, that was that was the, the final, you know, stage, Vince McMahon and Steve Austin. Yeah, and that uh, that takes us into into Montreal, the 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 most discussed topic, obviously, that it, that has come out of these last uh, twenty three years, and it it is interesting to look at, you know, what what is going on now with the talk once again of some type of labor organization uh, within WWE, within professional wrestling as a whole, and you have to look, Dave, that of the last twenty five years, I mean. We've always talked about the idea of, you know, the day of WrestleMania, talent having their most leverage. This might have been the time that there was at least the most discussion of talent coming out of that, of not showing up to Raw the next night. And pretty much all, except for a handful, do show up at Raw the very next night. But you had just this this figure in Bret Hart who was this locker room leader that you seem that that was like the most clear, the clear case of of a talent that this guy had language in his contract that was completely ignored and talent really seeing like where, where the power structure is and how lopsided it is in one favor. Yeah. I mean, that night was, was, was one of the craziest nights I ever remember because you're probably right on that night at that moment may have been the one time the talent was so mad that it's possible they could have done it, but that only lasted a while. And, and the fact is, is that Brett was one of the people who was just going like, go to work the next day. Don't get fired over me. Like if everyone would have left, um, you know, what would Vince have done? He couldn't have fired anyone. As it turned out, if 15 people left, I don't know that he would have done anything because the only one, the only one who really left was Mick Foley. And he was welcomed back with open arms, you know, three weeks later when it, when he kind of realized like, what am I holding out for? You know, Brett's got his, you know, Brett's got a new contract and he's doing well and everybody else went back to work and no one's complaining anymore. So I might as well come back too. It's the individualness of this industry that ultimately, I mean, you have to make those choices for yourself and that's going to lead yourself towards not, you know, being, being the one that's going to go astray. It's, you know, you, you fall in line because that's like, it's a very much individual, individualized industry in that sense. Yeah, but it was interesting that Mick Foley was the only one that that and, and this is even after being told by Brett, don't come. I mean, to come and don't breach your contract. He still didn't come. He was the only one. I mean, Owen didn't come, but that's the you know, the company was well aware and actually probably asked him not to. And he, he was in a bad spot anyway. And they brought him back a month later, giving him a big, you know, big raise and not letting him out of his contract. And Davey left. Um, you know, partially over that and, um, you know, other things too, you know, you even had the thing with the, um, 
the, the, the that you know that's another story is the Shawn Michaels not losing to Davy Boy Smith in um, Manchester in his hometown after Davy had you know dedicated the match to his sister who had cancer and been told that he was winning and I I mean I remember like I was told outright the week before I you know it's like I know Shawn says he's not doing any jobs because they were all mad, you know Shawn's not doing any jobs Shawn's saying he's not doing any jobs well he's doing a job for Davy Boy in in Manchester on that pay per view. And then the pay-per-view comes, and it's like, okay, he's doing the job for, for Davey. It makes sense. I mean, you're going to do it, right? I mean, that's the match to do it in. And then he wins, and it's like, what the hell happened? And, and, I, and I, you know, and then Davey, had, after doing that, it's just like, you know, that's, that was another really weird one. And, and, that, and that was a catalyst of Montreal. It's like, you know, your brother-in-law is supposed to beat him. He, he changes the rules at the last minute, and, you know, you know, you, you're, you know, it's kind of your family. It is your family. And then, you know, the whole thing that where he wouldn't do the job and, and, you know, cause the Montreal thing, I mean, the thing is, is that people, you know, Brett did, you would not do the job with, for, for Sean Michaels in Montreal. Absolutely. A hundred percent. He would not, but Sean would not either. It was two of them. And, you know, at the meeting right before the basic thing was, is, you know, they're both assholes and Sean's staying and Brett's leaving, so we're going to side with Sean. I mean, that's what happened, essentially, uh, because neither would do, you know, with, with the other. And you could have done a DQ, and Vince told Brett it was going to be a DQ, but, you know, he had other things in mind when he told everyone it was a DQ, it was going to be a DQ. How much do you look at at the fact that, you know, Brett gets the, the notice from Vince in September about he's going to breach the contract, you should go try and get that WCW offer back. Two months before that, Brett turns 40 and you've talked about that a lot. Like that number. Do you think that that, you know, Vince looks at, you know, this 20 year deal that he's entered into with a guy that's 40. Do you think that that, that does play at least a factor in Vince's decision where he's this sought after free agent a year ago is now someone he's willing to hand over. Oh, absolutely. I think that the whole thing was the 20 year thing to keep him because he needed to do that at the time. At the time, you know, I think Vince, because he'd lost Hall and Nash, they were really scared about losing Brett. And then it's kind of like it's a year later. And, you know, Brett was still big and they were in the war, but they were also, you know, at the time that this all went down, they were losing money and Brett had the highest contract and they were trying to get better rates on a loan. And one of the things with better rates on the loan is less expenditures and Brett, you know, so it's kind of like, well, to do that, we'll get rid of Brett's contract. So it will enable us to get the loan. But before this ever happens, you know, they raise the price on the pay-per-views and business turns around. And at the time, by this point, there really wasn't the need to get rid of Brett. In their minds, there was the need to get rid of Brett's contract. And, And they asked Brett to renegotiate and he said no, which was part of it. And then I think at that point, it's like, he wasn't loyal to us, not realizing that, look, he turned down, you know, $2.8 million a year for your $1.5 million a year out of loyalty. But to Vince, it wasn't loyal enough because when he asked him to renegotiate the contract from that deal, that was half, basically half as much as he was going to get from the other side, that he said, no, this is the deal you gave me. And I think at that point, you know, between that and complaining about the direction of the booking and that one thing where they were trying to portray the Canadians as racist. Do you remember that with the nation of, was it the nation yeah, domination where they yeah, with the nation, the graffiti, right, 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 right. And Brett was absolutely furious. Cause like he was a heel, but, but you know, number one, he was trying to be a baby face in, in Europe and certainly in Canada, but even as a heel, he wasn't going to play racist. I mean, that was like a line that he wasn't going to cross. 
and 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 be, and he made that clear. So they crossed it for him anyway, and that was like another big thing at the time that you know led to just terrible distrust um, from Brett's side. And you know there was a lot of bad feelings going on from both sides. I think Vince, you know Vince too, of kind of like you know I'm trapped with this 20 year deal and. He's 40, right? He's maybe he's going to wrestle for two or three more years, you're thinking, at the time. And then I got 17 more years of this deal, and, and how do I get out of this? You know, because I'm not making money hand over fist, even though at that point they are profitable again. When you look at these alternate scenarios, if if Brett ultimately stays with the company, Vince says, we can afford you now, Brett wants to stay, I think that there's a pretty good chance that Mike Tyson doesn't happen the next year. And conversely... If Brett had left amicably, loses the title after Survivor Series, or hands it over however they do it, you probably don't have that that heel Vince McMahon character, or at least not with the not with the momentum that that night provided you. They probably don't get to that point. Does the combination of Austin and a rising Dwayne Johnson ultimately get them still to that to those heights? Maybe it's delayed, or does you take Survivor Series out of the mix? It's it's a drastically different 1998 and beyond for the company. I think I I don't know that they get as strong without Vince McMahon because there'd be no heel Vince McMahon without Montreal. I don't it think so. No. Vince, no, no, I'm 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 sure of it actually because Vince didn't want to do it, but you know it was it, they were they dragged him kicking and screaming into it and he was great at it. But the point is is that he would have never done it without Montreal. There was no re- reason to do it. He was the television no, announcer. No. Yeah, so there's no there's no heel Vince McMahon. So I think without that, it doesn't get as big. I think WCW self-destructs the same way it did, and Rock and Austin will be very, very big. Does it get to the giant ratings that they got and the giant pay-per-view numbers and the sellouts almost every night? No. Do they beat WCW 100%? Yes. Um, I'm sure of that. Uh, because w- WCW did not lose – WCW – uh, shot itself. WWF did not shoot WCW. It's different from the territory era where Vince killed the territories. Um, you know, I mean, they to, all of them made big mistakes as well, but Vince created a scenario where none of them could have succeeded. Whereas with WCW, they were in the greatest situation. They were owned by a TV company. They didn't have to make lots of money. Um, and, um, you know, they had lots of revenue coming in from different places as long as they didn't kill their business. I mean, they could have been like WCW could have been a very strong, healthy number two for the next 20 years, except, you know, they made all those horrible mistakes and Vince was going to beat them by be based on that, their, their stupid booking. So, um, yeah, I, I think that it doesn't get as big, but they do win the war. And I think that because it doesn't get as big and Austin rock don't get as big that when the fall comes, which was going to come in 2001, either way, like, you know, they had this huge fan base to dwindle down over the next 19 years to where we are now, right? I think that you don't have that high point, so I think that by dwindling down, they're, you know, what, what do I say, 20%, 30% lower each year than they ended up being because they didn't have that giant uh, fan base to start with. And, you know, 2003, 2004, when things were bad, they were, they'd, be, they'd be a lot worse. I mean, I think the business would have been in very, very, you know, it was kind of in rough shape in the 2000s anyway, but I think it would have been in way worse shape in the 2000s had it not been for Montreal leading to the heel Vince McMahon, yeah. And I think also when, when you go through the yearbook and the just litany of Sean stories, like that is, 
you know, you, you never wish an injury on a guy, but him being out of that locker room, there's no doubt that that helped significantly, I think, for Austin to be up and running in 1998 because, I mean, Michaels was just a destructive force in 97. And for those that, that lived it and reported on it, I mean, the, these stories are just like this guy was persona non grata to so many. And it's not surprising so many talent sided with Brett after Montreal. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is is um, when everything was going on and, and Austin and more even The Rock, you know, Dwayne, if Sean was there, uh, they'd have done everything in their power to, to keep Dwayne from getting up. Because they were already doing it in 97 before he, he had really clicked. But they would have really done it then because he was the big rival for Triple H and Triple H was Sean's guy. And Sean and Triple H wanted to run the show. And they'd have, you know, I'm sure they'd have tried with Austin as well. And, and you know, I'm not saying, you know, they, they what would have happened with Austin, I don't know. Vince was very much behind Austin. Um, if Sean doesn't get hurt, does he cry about uh, losing the title at WrestleMania? Absolutely, because he did even when he was He leaving. did it when he, he was hurt. I, was, uh, I think a healthy Sean, it would have been, that would have been a tumultuous uh, it, weekend. Yeah, Undertaker might have really beat him up. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, or something would have happened. I mean, it was He would have like, convinced them, hey, I'll I'll win tonight, and then we'll do it in Austin's hometown five months from now, do the Davy Boy story, and just pro, pro, put off the title switch till SummerSlam. Right, but then Austin would have been like Lex Luger. Exactly. You, you missed the timing. Oh, you missed absolutely. the timing. I mean, how, how many times have you seen that where something's right there, and you know it's the right time, and you can feel it, and if you don't do it... You know, whether it's Misawa as the right time or Austin as the right time or Lex Luger not as the right time. And you can look back and just go like, um, you know, our Sting is more than any of them. Sting on that Starcade. I mean, you know, that was the time and there was only one finish and it was a clean Scorpion Deathlock in the middle. In, in a, you, know, you know what I mean? And they flim flammed around it and they never got it back from there. And it's like. That, you know, if, if Austin doesn't win at that WrestleMania and he convinces let's do it, you know, in nine months or next year's WrestleMania, no way does Austin get as big. No way. Because he'd, he'd, he'd cool off. When it comes to just like so many factors that that lead to to this this whole Montreal incident, like from, you know, the fact that Brett's negotiating a 20 year contract, but yet works it in to have this 30 day out where you get reasonable creative control the fact that there's a documentary that is following him and, and chronicling all of this uh, with Paul Jay. And I think a huge part of this, Dave, is the fact that afterwards, like the, the go-to reaction is even when you're upset with the promoter, you protect the business. But Brett was willing to talk to you about what happened. And that, to me, it, it puts Montreal into, to me, a more proper context rather than if Brett had just decided that, you know, he would stay quiet about it and maybe I'll have another run. I don't want to ultimately burn this bridge. Brett was not that guy that was going to be worried about that. Yeah, well, he felt so betrayed because it would have taken, you know how much it took because you did. the other thing that people don't know is that Brett and I were not friends at all at that time. I mean, we, we are friends now. We became, actually, we probably became friends through that story as it played out. Certainly not that week, but in time. But at that time, I mean, Brett did not like me at all. Um, his family did. Everybody else in the family did. Brett was the only one who didn't. Um, and, you know, it was it was people who told him. And he was at first, it was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And it's like, if not, the story is going to be you refuse to do the job. 
because um, that's the story they're going to get out. And they, in fact, did, because I had heard they refused to do the job long you know, before I talked to, you know, believe me, like first thing the next morning, Monday morning is, is you know, I'm getting the WWE story, WF story. And when I'm hearing the WF story, he refused to do the job. It's like wrestling war. He's leaving. Had to do the job. I mean, I was completely not on Brett's side. I didn't know about the contract clause. I didn't know the details of everything else. And then it was Tuesday when Brett called and we talked for hours and hours and hours and he went through everything. And then I still talked to WWF afterwards and went through it. And, you know, it, it, it really was interesting because the people WWF I talked to, even they, by the end of the conversation was like, you know what, you know, it's really hard to justify Vince, even though nobody would say that publicly. Um, cause they didn't know about the creative control and, and they didn't know the backstory and the legal letters back and forth. They just thought he refused to do the job. You know what I mean? And it's like, we had to get the title off him. He's going to the other company. He's going to go in as the rightful world champion. We cannot have this. And they don't realize that there's letters from Brett's lawyer basically saying, I will lose. And in, in November, you name the date, you know, once we get out of Canada, I'll lose in the garden. I'll lose in Greensboro. I'll lose in Springfield. I mean, it's like, it's like right there. I'll please let me, you know, I mean, he didn't say, please let me lose to Austin, but it's like, he, I would, you know, I want to lose to Austin. You understand why my choice is Austin. It's not Michael's, you know, for all the reasons that you know, Vince. I mean, it's all there written, you know, so it's like the idea that, and the other one too, and this is the craziest part of the story, is the documentary is being filmed. And you know, as you know, the documentary was done and it was a different documentary. And the totally. people don't understand that. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew the people when they were doing the documentary. I wasn't sold on the documentary. I mean, they talked to me all the time, and it's like, uh, you know, I mean, you're trying to make bread into this kind of hero standing up for values against this in this business that, that doesn't have a lot of values. And it's like, nah, what, I, I, it wasn't that hot to me. But Brett, you know, whatever, whether it's paranoia or whatever the thing is, he says, hey, come there, come here, and let's see. And Brett is taped. And to me, that's the thing for me that was the most interesting and crazy part of it is Brett's meeting with Vince in that dressing room is taped. And I heard every word of it. And Vince never once asks him to lose in the entire conversation. So Vince telling everyone, I asked him to lose. He was unreasonable, blah, blah, blah. I heard the conversation. So at that point, no matter what WWE says to me, and they don't know, I've, I've heard the entire conversation. And it's like, you know. I, I mean, there's things Brett could have said differently, for sure. I'm not saying nobody was 100% right or wrong, but what the way Vince portrayed it is I, I gave him every option. He just was never going to lose. It's like you never even asked him to lose. And that's, you know, and, and but without that, it's going to be Vince's word against Brett's. And yeah, Vince's word against Brett's, I'm, I'm going to believe Brett, but I'm going to have that shadow of a doubt because Brett's going to give his story and Vince is going to give his story. But with the tape, I didn't have to care about either guy's word because I know exactly, I knew the whole conversation. So that is the most fascinating part because it's probably, you know, the most talked about and one of the biggest matches in wrestling history. And we actually have more information on it. Like, I don't have any backstage, nobody has any backstage tape of the conversation between. Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan, when Andre refused to do the job that never happened, you know, that became folklore that everyone says that we all know never happened and, and, and everything like that. But this, it's like we actually have the, the entire conversation. What, what does that first conversation go like with, with Brett when he finally reaches out to you? Um, he just starts with a story dating back, like from 
you know, the day he was in Santa Clara, which is so funny because it's like my hometown and one of my best friends at the time was his chauffeur. And, you know, I mean, and, and Brett, he's going to, I believe it's Omaha. You know, he's, he's doing an autograph signing here and he's getting on the plane and he's going to Omaha to make his decision to announce on raw that he's signing. And while he's there, Eric and Nash and Hall are trying to talk him out of it and, you know, offering him this money. And he's got this contract and he hands it to my friend and goes, you know, keep this as a souvenir, you know, and it was the contract, (laughs) the WCW $2.8 million contract. That's how I know the number. Unbelievable. Isn't that unbelievable? So, so, um, it's, it's like, um, it starts in San Jose. So he basically starts the story in Santa Clara. And then he goes through the whole year of Sean, just this. And the other one was it was in San Jose. I was out with, with one of the wrestlers with WWE after a show in San Jose, me and my girlfriend at the time, and, and him and, and, and his family, another wrestler, and um, just wanting to kill Sean. And he wouldn't, the wrestler wouldn't even talk. You know, he was just like, so whatever, wouldn't even talk. And finally, it's like, you know what? What's going on? Why are you in such a bad mood? And he just goes, Sean Michaels. And he goes, so, and he's telling me the story about how Sean Michaels, Brett, the, the story that Brett's told, you know, so I knew this was true too. It's like, Brett, you know, basically says, you know, I know I'm going to have to lose to you. And Sean was like, well, if the shoe was on the other foot, I just want you to know I would never lose to you. And, you know, so, so you've got that. So I know that story. So we're going through all the thing, the night in, I think it's Nassau where Vince, you know, tells him that I'm going to breach the contract, go call Eric. And just, he goes through the whole thing, the creative control, the speaking to Earl Hebner before the thing, you know, Earl, you got my back. Yes, Brett, I would never double cross you. And it's like, it becomes like, like, again, I just think it's some, it's, it's a pro wrestling double cross. It's Mula Richter. You know what I mean? It's Mula Richter. It's, uh, um, uh, which Don Eagle and Gorgeous George, you know, like the, these things that have happened before and just simply that. And it's like, okay, I know the story. And then, yeah. And this multi-hour conversation going through, it's just like, oh my God, this is like the greatest, unbelievable story. And then Brett at the end, after he's talked to me for like, you know, two and a half, three hours, he just goes in the end, everything I told you, I will prove to you is true. And again, this is a guy I don't know. And he says this. And then over the weeks, Pretty much, I've got to say, everything he said proved to be true. Wow. Um, the last thing here, because uh, I know I've already uh, kept you a while here, but I just wanted to read this uh, this one paragraph from, uh, this was the April 21st issue that year, where you wrote, It also can't be emphasized enough what a great job WCW has done of local promotion, something the company in the past had a tradition of doing poorly, most of which is headed by Zane Breslov's awesome promotions out of Denver. The list of people that WCW got from WWF when it comes to importance to the company, with the exception of Hogan, Breslov has been, if not more important than any of them, when it comes to the turnaround in house show business. And Zane Breslov is a character that I think a lot of people have maybe heard the name, but don't know a whole lot about. And you're one of the few people that had a very you know close friendship with over the years. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, first... Uh, getting in touch with Zane Breslov and, you know, him being like a very important behind the scenes figure during th- this whole time, especially in 1997. Well, Zane Breslov came from the music industry. So what I did, you know, with the, with the observer at the time was no different from what many people did in the music industry. You had the gates and the, the, you know, r- you know, rating the music and things like that. So for him, like, like within the wrestling industry, they didn't know how to take me. Zane coming from music was just like, oh, he's the guy. 
you know, whatever the, the, the thing was. The Dirt Sheet is, is, was the name of the leading newsletter in the rock and roll concert industry. That's the name. That was, I, I don't know if it was called the Dirt Sheet or that was the, the um, um, terminology that was used in the music industry for this newsletter that was, you know, equivalent to what I was doing at the time. So Zane started calling it a dirt sheet, which is where that name actually came from. And then, um, you know, he just started, we just started talking gates and business and everything, you know, when he was with WWF and then, you know, through the thing with WCW and his friendship with Hogan, he was always very, very, very tight with Hogan, you know, him and Hogan were very, you know, aligned when Hogan came, he came, um, Jimmy Hart obviously came, you know, that was, that was kind of like the group, um, that were really, really, really tight. And he became like a real big um, Bischoff. He was a big, big fan of Eric Bischoff. And he was a guy who just, he's this guy who would just come up with idea after idea after idea. And then his thing with me is he'd come up with an idea, he'd call me and go like, pitches to Eric. And if it was, I thought it was a dumb idea, I'd go, no. And I never saw one of the ideas I said no to. I don't know if he ever pitched them or not, but I never saw one of them. But if I said yes, you know, eight out of 10, I'm seeing it three weeks later. You know what I mean? So yeah. Eric listened to his, I think I was the filter. He went to Eric. Eric implemented most of the ideas. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of the Eric stuff came from Hogan and a lot of it came from Zane and they were, they were on the top of, you know, Hogan was, is always for Hogan, right? But building Hogan was good for WCW in 95, 96, 97. Um, and Zane was really good for WCW in those years, building everything. And then, you know, in 98, it, it, it started to collapse. I mean, it was like, it was, you know, everyone's got their run and Hogan's, specialness or whatever it was hogan's was coming to a close and that's where they missed the boat and that's where austin was able to take over and bill goldberg could have been that guy too but they knew they had something with goldberg but they thought that hogan was the long-term answer and bill goldberg was just like something underneath hogan and they needed to go in the other direction it needed to be bill goldberg as, as the face of the company and hogan had to step down and they, they couldn't make and none of them could make the move because all they'd seen for 15 years is Hulk Hogan carries the business. And I, and people now, I don't think that people now can really understand unless you were a big fan in the eighties and even in the early nineties of what a difference maker Hulk Hogan was. I mean, even as big as Austin was, and Austin was bigger than Hogan when Austin was his peak, but Hogan was such a difference maker. And, and you just had this feeling he'd been one for 15 years. Austin was only a couple of years that, it would always, that's, I, that was Eric's things. It will always be that way. I remember the conversations with Eric and he would just say when I'm going like, hey, things are, things are getting shaky. You know, it's like, you know, things are getting shaky. You got to make moves. You've got to elevate new guys. And Eric's line always was where Hogan goes, goes the money. And I go, not forever. Nothing is forever. And Eric didn't want to hear it. And, and, you know, eventually that was, that wasn't what, the number one thing of the, the downfall of WCW, but it was one of many, but it was a key one. My last thing here is, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot now that we're getting to the end of the year and just looking at, you know, at, at this pandemic, had this happened a generation ago, it's catastrophic to the industry where the, the guaranteed rights fees are not there. It's, it's a disaster. At the same time, we look at, you know, 20 years ago, it seemed that when you were more tied to your, your pay-per-view, putting all of your resources, because that's a big money earner, house show business has to be strong, that there was so much more of a reliance on creating and protecting your individual stars. Today, do you think that that's 
that's less important than ever in terms of, you know, one individual star that maybe it's going to, you know, if, if you get your monster superstar, that, that can be a big deal. But for WWE, it seems they are so tied to their fixed revenue that stars have less leverage than ever now. Oh, individuals? Like, yeah, there's nobody. There's no Hulk Hogan. There's no Steve Austin. There's nobody like that. Roman Reigns isn't, isn't anything close to that. He, could, he left for months. Business, I mean, it wasn't the greatest thing, and business did get better when he came back. But, um, you know, they survived because – and their money, you know, they're still making the same money because whether he's there or not. So, yeah, the stars don't have the leverage, and the pressure to make stars isn't there. You're on easy street. You really are. And UFC, too. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, UFC used to live and die, I mean, like, you know, based on Brock Lesnar, and then it was Ronda and Conor McGregor. And now they're on UFC's on easy street, and they're on easy street. And you can tell every Saturday when I watch UFC and I look at those lineups, I go, they never would have put on a card like this. You know, look, look at the main event ago. of this next pay-per-view with like you can do a Devison Figueredo headlining on three weeks notice and it's like it's it's not like against, that that never could have flown Brand, in 2007 but today it does against Brandon Moreno it would have been a disaster they they might have I mean they did headline Demetrius Johnson but even you know Demetrius Johnson like if we really think about it he was a much bigger star than Davison Figueredo is and 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 so so yeah they they never did this, or just like um, Jack Herman- Hermanson and Marvin Vittori Saturday night. I'm looking at this going like, you know, for, for you know a television show, it's like, come on. I mean, they're not even names. I mean, Jack is to a degree, but not a main event. And then with UFC, with, with, with WWE, you know, it's like that we're putting together, like, you know, we're putting together pay-per-views. Like, like Roman Reigns and Kevin Owens, obviously, you know, they probably didn't even come up with this until just days before Friday, because the week before... In the Survivor Series, Kevin Owens wasn't protected one iota, which they would have done if he was going to main event on the next pay-per-view. So they're just, it's easy because no matter what you do, you're not worried about the pay-per-view buy rate because it doesn't matter. And the network number isn't going to fluctuate unless it's WrestleMania anyway, no matter what you do. So you're in the situation where the matches don't matter and you become, you know, it, you, I'm not saying they're not lazy, but they don't get worried about it and, and scared. And when you're not worried and scared, you kind of go with the flow and you just, uh, you know, whatever, we, you know, you, you do what they do now, which is just kind of, okay, what do we do this week? Let's get out of this week. Now this week is over. And now next week we'll start thinking about next week as opposed to we got to, you know, we got to think about the pay-per-view in two months, then the one in three months, then the one in six months. And then we got to have the whole card for Mania and work backwards to how we get there. It's like that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I highly recommend all of our listeners to check out the Wrestling Observer yearbook covering 1997. Uh, I, I love the format of it as well. It's just uh, really well laid out and a lot of lessons that you can apply from even 23 years ago uh, to today and going back to a, a completely different time uh, for this industry. And it sounds like, Dave, that uh, 1993 may be in the uh, the on-deck circle. That's what they, you know. That's what they told me. Um, yeah, 1993 and then 2001 would probably be the next two, is what what I'm thinking right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, but they'll be. Hope, I mean, hopefully. I mean, everything is dependent on the sales of the one before. You know, it's going to go as, until people stop buying them, and at that point there will be no more. But um, you know, this one this one went well, and I hope 93. I mean, 93 is a very different year. It's not as controversial, but it was a year of a lot of. Um, you know, the start of ECW, the start of K1, the start of UFC, the start of Pancras, um, the low point of WWE, the, the dark ages of, of WWE and WCW. That was like terrible years for both. But um, and then 2001, obviously, is the end of ECW and the end of WCW and the end of the war. And, um, 
you know, um, WWF's last gigantic year in, in some ways as well. So you can go find the book, uh, Amazon.com. It's probably your best bet to uh, check it out, as well as all of Dave's fine work at WrestlingObserver.com. And Dave, I just want to thank you so much uh, for, for joining us today here at uh, Post Wrestling to chat about the book, and uh, congratulations on its release. Okay, thanks very much. And John, you do such great work. You know, I mean, like you're, you know, you're my favorite reporter. So, I mean. Oh, wow. That means a lot. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah.